Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 10 through 15, and we'll be focusing on verse 12 from this chapter. Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us hear the message that your Spirit has for this church. Let us hear the Spirit speaking through the Word of God, the message of Jesus Christ into the hearts of your people. For it is in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Over the last weeks, we've been looking at this prayer of Ezra for the people who had intermarried with the idolaters of the land. And we've talked in the past about the commandments of God regarding intermarrying with those who were not God's people and the great sin of these who ignored God's commandment. Perhaps they thought His commandment was just too old-fashioned After all, this commandment was given hundreds of years before, and they had progressed in their society so far in that period of time. Just like Christians today who look at the commandments of Scripture and judge them to be out of step with our modern ideas of right and wrong. And so today we'll look at what to our modern eyes may be a collection of the most disturbing commandments of God on this subject. And that is verse 12. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. We look at this passage and all kinds of adjectives come to our modern minds. We might think intolerant. Do not marry with them. We might think unkind. Never seek their peace or prosperity. Perhaps we might even think snooty or haughty that you might be strong in the land. Or perhaps we might even think legalistic. 
Certainly for many Christians, no description of this passage at all would be made in a positive light. And yet, Ezra prays these very things without blushing. He blushes about the people around him who have not obeyed God in the first place. That's what made him ashamed. If we look back in verse 6 of the same chapter, he says, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. He's not ashamed of the Word of God. He's He's not ashamed of the law. He is ashamed before God that the people have abandoned His law. He is ashamed before God that the people have been continuing in the sin that caused God to conquer their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers. That's what should shame us. Our sin, our guilt, our transgression of God's law. We should be ashamed. And so today as we focus our attention on this text I would like to suggest something to you that after we have studied this passage in detail this morning, that you are going to see that this verse is nothing short of the most concise description of evangelism in the entire Bible, not merely in the Old Testament. I know you may be raising your eyebrows right now. If not on your face, actually inside your head, virtually. You may be saying evangelism, but I invite you to accompany me in looking at what the Holy Spirit has commanded here. And I feel certain you're going to come to the very same conclusion. Let's begin with that first phrase. Do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Now, some of you may have noticed if you were following along, I skipped a word, didn't I? The word that begins that verse. Therefore. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons. Neither take their daughters for your sons. That means this commandment against intermarrying with the people of the land was not just an arbitrary commandment. None of God's commandments truly are. But when you see the word therefore, you always have to ask what the word is there for. And so when we look back to verse 11, we discover the reason that God gives them this commandment. He says, the land you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end with their pollution." The land is full to overflowing with a spiritual pollution. Therefore, do not allow your children to become entangled with their iniquity. By allowing their sons and their daughters to marry outside the household of faith, they compromise their testimony to God's greatness. How can they say to their son-in-law who worships Baal on every tall hill, that God alone is God? How can they say to their daughter-in-law who is training their grandchildren but is still worshiping the Asherah? 
how can they possibly say to her that God is the only God? They compromised their testimony even to God's sovereignty. And they certainly compromised their testimony to God's law as the expression of God's love. You don't have to look far today to see the same thing happening. You can forget the marriage part of this even for a second. Look at the endorsement of the false gods, the false ideologies we allow when we entertain any kind of merger with the world. When we're unequally yoked, very often our tongues are tied as to the excellence of God or the heinousness of sin. The great failure of the American church in the last hundred years is that it has lost its voice in calling out sin. We've simply lost our voice. And even worse, it has lost its nerve to proclaim that sin is a deadly state and that God calls all men everywhere to repent. Instead of being a light that shines in the darkness of this world to offer salvation, the Western church has hidden its light under a hundred bushels. Bushels of uncertainty, of cowardice, of equivocation, of politics. And perhaps worst of all for our neighbors around us, we produced a shifting light, a trumpet that is not sounded clearly. We, you and I, are guilty in this. As surely as Ezra shared in the, in the guilt of the Jews of his day. That is why this portion of today's text is so crucial to evangelism. If we cannot help people identify sin, what need do they see for a Savior? If you think that all is right with me, that all my decisions are right, that I can do whatever is right in my own eyes, what do you need a Savior for? But that self-righteousness will simply drag you down. Drag you down to hell. God has the only words of life. And our children who represent the next generation of the church have been so often forfeited to the spirit of the age. Romans 12, 2, we're commanded not to be conformed to this age. That's the little word. Do not be conformed to this age. But while organizations that call themselves churches wring their hands over whether they will offend someone who is living in the perversion that is called homosexuality, if they call it a sin, the Bible is clear that this is a perversion of the intent of God for all people. And while many of those same blind guides would rather provide superior entertainment on Sunday, God tells us in His Word in Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 23, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. You can update that to electric guitars, drums, or anything else you'd like. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A church that fails to stand upon the whole Word of God is in grave danger of not 
being a church, but being a synagogue of Satan. Recall that tiny, powerful church among the seven churches that Jesus sent messages to in the book of Revelation, that church at Philadelphia. If you look in Revelation 3.8, we find what made that tiny little church so strong. He says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That is what makes a strong church. You can have no evangelism without the knowledge of sin. You can have no revival without repentance from sin. You can have no church without the clear preaching of the Bible because there is no love of God outside of Jesus Christ, period. You can quote to me all day long, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But I will continue the verse and say that He sent His only Son. God's love is always and only expressed through Jesus Christ. That was the message of the false prophets that Jeremiah was preaching against in the passage we read this morning. They were preaching, it doesn't matter what you do. You have the temple. You are God's people. He will keep you forever. God loves you no matter your sin. He loves you no matter your heart. He loves you and will keep you no matter what you do. And that is simply false. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Brothers and sisters, we have allowed this age to press us into its mold. We've allowed the threat or the fear of retaliation to silence the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that gospel begins in all cases, you are a sinner alienated from God. No one can hear the call of Christ who has not first come to that certainty. We cannot and we must not allow the spirit of the age to continue to indoctrinate our children or even steal our hearts and minds. We must vehemently reject the lie that telling someone they are sinning is somehow unloving. Would we be afraid if we were sitting in a restaurant having dinner? Would we be afraid to interrupt the dinner of the person sitting at the table next to us, to tell them that the building is on fire and there is only a single exit that is left accessible to them. And that for only a short time. That is the state of the sinner without Jesus Christ. Our message to them must be you are in more danger than you know. Even if you don't see it. Even if you refuse to acknowledge it. Even if you close your eyes and you cover your ears. The sin you live in is a peril to your soul. The sin you live in will take you to death and to hell. And there is but one escape through Jesus Christ. 
If the Bible calls something sin, we as followers of Jesus Christ must likewise call it sin. Not for the sake of condemnation, but all to the cause of evangelism. All to the cause of the gospel. We must call them to repent of their sin. When Jesus began preaching His first message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. This is not going to be a popular message, even if it is the most necessary message. The great preacher Joseph Parker said 150 years ago, a man whose little sermon is repent, sets himself against his age and will for the time being be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man. Off with his head. You had better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. Pledge your head to heaven and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you may ask, okay, I understand that people need an understanding of sin, but what about that next phrase in our text today? Never seek their peace or their prosperity. You might legitimately ask how this could possibly be a description of evangelism. Not to seek their peace? Not to help their prosperity? You see, we can understand this by going back to the original statement of this phrase. We look back in Deuteronomy 23.6 and understand it is the language of a treaty. You, it, it says there, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. If you understand that this means don't make a treaty with them, then what we're told is not to accept peace on their terms. Not to seek peace from them. Not to seek peace that they define because the terms of this age will always be to compromise the Word of God for the sake of peace. We see churches in our country and in Canada being threatened or closed because of the Bible's teaching against sexual perversion, homosexuality, or any number of socially acceptable sins that God simply calls sin. I do realize homosexuality is not the only sin. But it's certainly the darling sin of the culture around us right now. Fitting itself with protections and pronouncements in spite of what Scripture says. The culture around us, the age around us would offer us this treaty. You can stay open. You can come and worship God however you want to, as freely as you want to. Just stop talking about sin. Just preach that God loves everybody. Just preach the message of the false prophets. That God loves you no matter what you do. 
And that is what God means here by never seek their peace. When we look at this from the point of view of evangelism, how in the world would our capitulation to the age bring someone to the Lord Jesus Christ? When someone tells you it's not loving to call someone to repentance, that you should be quiet, I ask you how in the world can they then be saved? Paul asked the same question in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He says, How then will they call on Him who they've not believed? And how will they believe in Him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Nothing in this phrase that Ezra uses here, that is used from Deuteronomy, never seek their peace or prosperity, has anything to do with prohibiting assisting those in need or establishing relationships with the unconverted people around us. The point of the command is not to shun people, but to keep us in our misguided idea of love from short-circuiting the Holy Spirit's work in their life. We call sin, sin. We proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has died to take away that sin, to free them from that sin. There is no more loving message on earth. We are expected as followers of Jesus Christ to help people who are in need. And that has nothing to do with seeking their prosperity. So don't don't worry about that part. It is likely that if they're experiencing hardship that we can help with, the Holy Spirit has brought them to this point specifically so that they can hear the gospel from us as we meet their needs. This is not peace on their terms. This is peace on God's terms. But there are Christians out there telling unrepentant sinners that God loves them in their sin. My Bible says that God sent His Son to shed His blood to free them from that sin. That's love. Not some sappy, impotent sentimentality but God's love that transforms the fallen dead creature into a live new creation designed to live with Him forever. Put another way, what is the fact that someone loves Him to a man who is rapidly drowning in quicksand? Up to his chin and about to go under. And someone standing on the side saying, I love you. What good is that? The love that means anything to that drowning man is the love that pulls him out and saves his life. We as the church are not in the business of offering peace with God through any through the mean we are not I'm sorry, let me restate this. We as the church we are not in the business of offering peace with God, except through the means that God has ordained. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to offer any other peace to the unconverted around us, rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ and denies God who sent Him. We must offer peace on God's terms alone. And we see good example of it throughout Scripture. We talk about intermarrying with the peoples, but I remind you again of Rahab the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabite, both banned peoples who were allowed and blessed to marry into God's people. What's the difference between them and the idolaters of the land? Rahab and Ruth rejected their idols and they followed Yahweh. They left their idolatry to serve the one true God. The marriages God prohibited and that Ezra confessed were made with those who maintained their allegiance to their false gods who are mere idols. God's terms of peace say, Come and surrender. Worship Me alone. And I will save you. Finally, we look at the phrase, leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. That's the promise of God's future blessing on His people. Because by remaining faithful to Him, God's people are assured of their continued service to Him. We looked earlier at that small but mighty church at Philadelphia in the book of Revelation But there are six other churches our Lord Jesus sends word to. And you may recall His warning to the church at Ephesus. In Revelation 2 verse 5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent." How many churches continue to be winnowed because they ceased loving the Word of God? Now please don't mistake winnowing, which is separating the chaff from the corn, to mean the same thing as declining. You see, in a world that's seeking anyone to scratch their itching ears, the least faithful churches may have the largest attendance. Attendance totals are no good measure for God's church. The measures of a church of Jesus Christ are a faithfulness to Scripture, courage in the proclamation of the gospel, development of each believer in faithfulness, The Holy Spirit's power in the message of the gospel preached by all the members. And above all, love for each other that far surpasses any civic group camaraderie and invades each other's lives. Those are the marks of a healthy church. 
the call to the church in general, and this church in particular, is to stop trying to mix God's Word with the world's permission to reach some sort of equilibrium or peace. The Scripture tells us to be bold in preaching the gospel. When the Sanhedrin threatened Peter and John with a beating, if they did not stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ, they went back to the church. And the church didn't pray that the persecution would end. The church prayed, make us bold in the face of it. Keep us steadfast and faithful to the Word of Jesus Christ. The church must be loving toward those around us in this preaching. And we must live, as the missionary C.T. Studd wrote, realizing that we run a rescue shop a yard from the gates of hell. That is what this church is. It is a rescue shop here in Alex City. One yard for the gates of hell for those who are outside. For those who have never met Jesus Christ. Who have never broken their will. Who have never repented and followed Him. Nothing but the unaltered gospel of Jesus Christ can save those who will step very shortly from this life into hell. That is why the message of the gospel is so important. That is why the faithfulness that God is calling us to in this verse 12 is the same thing as evangelism. It informs our evangelism. We know that we preach the gospel because it is born in the Word of God. It is carried through in God's means. And it is brought by the love of God, offering the same terms that He has offered us. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Our Father, You do not mix You don't mix with the gods of this world. You don't mix with the philosophies of our minds. You don't mix with the sin that so easily entangles us. You've called us out of it. You've taken us from this world of death into Your realm of life. And you did it all through Jesus Christ alone. The salvation you brought is through Jesus Christ alone. When you hung him on the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. an unimaginable, eternal wrath from you, condensed 
in a single moment. All the pain, all the punishment that we deserved was laid upon Him so that we could be brought to you in His righteousness. Foreign as it is, even ill-fitting, but you have wrapped us in His righteousness so that we can stand before you and offer our worship and our prayers and our praise to you. You, were, you have been glorified in Jesus Christ. Be glorified in our following Him. You raised Him from the dead. You have exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. We bow. We bow and worship to you. We seek your glory. God, I pray that you will overwhelm us day by day with the price that was paid for us and the compassion, the mercy, and the grace to reach out to those around us, not in judgment, but God, with the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen.